Good morning, everyone. I'm Sarana Sandy, CEO of Skills for Change, and welcome to our Spotlight events where we focus on emerging topics as we have done over the last few months. We are focusing on anti-Black racism. Today's focus in particular, we are discussing anti-Black racism as a public health crisis with Libin Gibber-Macau, whom I'll introduce shortly. On September, on September 1st, please note, we'll be looking at the impact of COVID-19 on racialized immigrant women and strategies for post-COVID recovery. Before we get started this morning, uh, we would acknowledge that the land we are meeting on is a traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, <clears throat> the First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today as settlers, we are grateful to have the opportunity to meet and work on this territory. I would apologize in advance for any technical difficulties we may experience with Zoom. I know I had to start over again and um, we'll be mindful of that and please bear with us as we go forward. For those of you new to Skills for Change, we are a registered charity focused on uh, supporting immigrants and refugees with a myriad of services, including employment, language training, mentoring and settlement and other services to about 20,000 clients across Toronto, Peel, York, and Hamilton-Wentworth regions. Some basic housekeeping today, you'll be muted for the duration of our call um, and group chat. You can send any questions that you have to any of the hosts and they will relay those questions and we'll pose those questions to our guests this morning. You'll also be able to access um, copies of the session today on our YouTube channel, our podcast, which should be found anywhere that you listen to podcasts, it's SFC Connect and we'll email a recording of the session to all attendees. So joining me this morning is Libin Gebra-Makal. And Libin, I do apologize if I am mangling your name. I hate when people do that to me, so please let me know if I got it wrong. And he's the Executive Director of Taibu Community Health Center and the first Black male Executive Director of a community health center in the province. Um, Libin has over 25 years of experience in the primary healthcare sector, social services, mental health, and community capacity building and development field. We've included his bio on our Eventbrite website uh, link, and you could review that a little bit more thoroughly, and we'll be sending further information as we go. So we are at 11.05, and we want to get started. Good morning, Libin. Thank you so much for uh, joining me this morning, joining us. Appreciate you spending that time with us today. Thank you very much for the invitation and uh, for having some important conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. So before we get into the discussing particularly why anti-black racism is viewed as a public care crisis and what could be done about it, it would be great for you if you could just take a minute and just talk to us about what you do at Taibu, the organization, your team, and how that focus has evolved over the last few months, especially as more emphasis has been placed on anti-black racism and the, you know, the community that you serve, and with COVID-19 may have impacted the way your service has been delivered to black and racialized folks. So thank you, uh, Sarana. Uh, so, Taibu um, is is a Kiswahili word, so I might start with the name itself. Mm -hmm. and it's a wish or a greeting, um, and it translates as uh, uh, saying, be in good health. And so the founding members of the organization really wanted to make sure that they not only rooted the organization in, a, in an African-centered value and, and uh, principle, but also that it... Um, it meets the, the kind of a vision and mission of the organization. Taibu was established um, 
well, we, we came into being, physical being in 2008, but the process for establishing Taibu has been a long one, beginning around 2002 um, or early 2000, I would say. Uh, it started by the Black Health Alliance, which is an umbrella organization of uh, Black-led organizations uh, and individuals who are working in the health and social services field. And uh, the conversation at the time that the Black Health uh, Alliance members and individuals were having was, um, again, the same conversation that we're having today around the challenges and issues faced by the Black community and what do we need to do. And they had a couple of initiatives that they were working on. One was um, a research study they did um, that uh, looked at how Black youth were accessing health services in Scarborough. Um, and obviously, the, 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 the result of the, the study showed what the gaps were. And then they were also part of the consultation process um, for the Medicare for All uh, consultation that was happening nationwide. And the Black Health Alliance uh, submitted uh, a, a document or a report to highlight the, the focus that is required to address uh, the access gaps for Black communities. Uh, the report, which uh, now is known as the Romano report. Uh, so once they did that, and there was a, a lot of engagement and passion and uh, people coming together, they really moved into an action stage where they said, you know, well, we've been doing all the studies and research and consultation. Maybe we should do something about really bringing um, some services and some action to, to the issue. And that's when the idea of creating a center that was focused on, on the black community was discussed. Uh, there were quite a few um, medical professionals who were interested in establishing a health clinic or a health team. Uh, submission was made to the ministry. Um, the ministry um, looked at the application and uh, there were other alignment systems alignment that was happening. The ministry at the time was uh, expanding the community health centers in Ontario. At the time, there were about 20 or so community health centers, and uh, there was uh, 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 an expansion that the, the ministry was looking at. So that also made sense to say, okay, maybe this should be part of a community health center expansion program. And in 2005, the ministry agreed that there should be a community health center that is focused on the black population as its priority population here in Malvern, located in Malvern. And then between 2005 and 2000 and uh, end of 2007, there was a community engagement. Then the services, the, the plan for the center was developed and approved by the ministry. And we came into existence in 2008. So our, our priority population is the black community across the GTA. As a community health center, we provide primary health care services, uh, which is uh, you know services with physicians and nurse practitioners and other allied health professionals. But we also have, as other CHCs, a focus on health promotion, community development, capacity building uh, that is focused on the population. We also serve all the residents here in our Malvern neighborhood. And over the years, we've added two uh, specific projects, one around the francophone communities in Scarborough, since there were no other francophone uh, service providers in, in the region. And then we also have now a collaboration with an indigenous uh, wellness Council to um, develop and implement uh, mental health and wellness uh, program. So uh, 90 
98, 97% of our population are black and racialized indigenous communities. Um, within the so the last few months um, has not brought about significant change to what we're doing because you know what we have been established to do was actually what now we're all really very aware of what the challenges are. I think um, one thing that in reflection with the staff that we had after um, the, the anti-black uh, racism movement and the Black Lives Matter movement was this really um, strengthened the awareness and the requirement or the need for an organization such as Taibu that is focused on, on the black population and addressing some of the challenges that we're facing. So um, this is the work that we do on a, on a day in, day out. Obviously now that there is uh, more awareness, um, not so much within our communities, but the other stakeholders and system players, which I think gives us an opportunity to really engage and build relationship so that we can really bring about some changes uh, in the community as it relates to anti-black racism overall and then COVID obviously has also created some impact in how we do programming uh, we haven't stopped our primary care services we have continued even though we have changed the way we deliver our services but we have been continuing with our primary care provision through telephone consultation online digital platforms video conferencing and virtual care the only thing that uh, was we had to kind of uh, really do some planning and change is our community programs that require a gathering and stuff like that. And now we're moving on to uh, digital platforms to provide the services that we can as much as we can. Uh, but you know, again, just like any other um, service provider that is working with the black community and racialized communities, COVID actually amplified the, the challenges, the barriers, the, the, the disparities and equity issues that have been existed. Um, and again, I would say that the kind of position that we are taking is we really want to use this opportunity to kind of shift the needle a little bit more because we won't have this opportunity again. As much as COVID is challenging and probably we'll talk about it more and studies have shown now some, some information from Toronto Public Health, for example, uh, last week that came out uh, is showing the disparities uh, in how COVID is impacting our communities, definitely. But we knew this already. Um, but I think it has given us now some tools and some documents and some information, mm -hmm. some data to be able to advocate more, to engage more, to open up doors for actual some change. As much as COVID is really difficult and it's impacting us more, I think we have to turn that around and use it to be able to starts shifting the needle a little bit further because we won't have this kind of an opportunity where the system players are listening mm -hmm. are forced to listen to what is happening out there thank you and really um great that you can give our um audience members and myself also a little bit of the history of how table came to be formed and the importance of the organization and people that are served um we'll come back and talk a little bit more impact of covid and, and some of the um, solutions you're going to propose but we want to talk, start off to understand, you know, back in June when Toronto Public Health announced that uh, anti-black racism is a public health crisis that does require um, urgent action. Um, from your exp expertise and ex 
experience, um, why is anti-Black racism a public health crisis? How have you seen it manifested in the work that you do in community and in health services in particular? So um, thank you for that question. And I would really want to give credit to uh, my colleagues, um, a few uh, health leaders within the CHC community. Uh, you know, we have a group called the Black Health Leaders Community uh, that has really, really worked very hard in advocating for Toronto Public Health and other system players to view uh, anti-Black racism as a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how Toronto Public Health was able to come to that uh, position. So uh, I would want to give credit to our Black health leaders who started this process. Um, so, you know, how we define health and, and how we should be defining health, uh, it should, you know, really gives us the, the understanding or the window of why anti-black racism is a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. Number one, um, when we look at health issues uh, in the broader sense that includes all the social determinants of health and social determinants of equity, um, we look, we, we see that education, employment, mental health, uh, access to services, living environment, housing, uh, racism, and particularly in our case, anti-black racism, all have an impact on the health of an individual, and most importantly, on the health of communities and population. So if we are looking health from a social determinants uh, perspective, then we can see how anti-black racism and the impact of anti-black racism on some communities more than others um, is an issue that needs to be looked from a public health perspective. It's not an individual health issue, right? So I'm, as a black person, I'm probably three to four times at risk of developing diabetes or hypertension, right? And the system might say it's because of how I live, how I eat, all those kind of things. So it's my responsibility and my disposition. But when you look at health from a social determinant of health, it's broader than that, right? There are other factors that are putting me at this high risk of developing chronic disease if we're looking at physical health. But we also have to look at all the other health issues. So that's how we have to have a public health approach in addressing anti-black racism, number one. Number two, the public component of the public health crisis suggests or directs that this is not just an individual issue. It's not also a black community issue. It's actually everybody's issue that needs to be looked at from, you know, everybody's responsible and everybody is part of the solution. So it's a public issue, right? So that's the other component. And then the crisis component is particularly where we are today, because, you know, I mean, you know, this discussion and conversation did not happen yesterday, did not happen in March, did not happen when COVID started. It has been ongoing for generations. But we are at a stage where this should not continue as is. So it is a crisis because there is an urgency, there needs, there needs to be an attention, there needs to be a plan and a strategy to address it. So the three components for me, that health is being impacted by anti-Black racism, that it is everybody's responsibility, both our communities in raising the voice, but as one indigenous elder said once, and this has stayed with me uh, you know, since, is that we as Black people or we as indigenous people, did not oppress ourselves, right? It's a, a society that has oppressed 
the population, the marginalized and racialized population. And so they have to be part of the solution. They are part of the problem and they also have to be part of, of the solution. So that's why it has to be a public health uh, approach. And it is a crisis that requires urgency, a plan and resources to be able to address it, right? So when COVID came up, it was a crisis. It was a health crisis. Everybody got together. There was a plan. Okay, you know, we are now um, show, you know, seeing the results of the plan and the strategy in order to address COVID-19 in our community societies in our country. And we're doing great. It should be the same thing when we're looking at anti-black racism. It should be a crisis where we come together and there's a plan, a strategy, a resource so that we address it straight on instead of just leaving it and you know and we'll probably we'll talk about it in terms of what needs to be done uh, but it's it's an individual issue it's a community issue it's a public health issue and it's a crisis that requires an urgent attention okay great thank you and so for people who may not understand can you walk us through you know how are black folks health impacted like particularly how can we see um, the impact of anti-black racism on our health so people say well, i don't understand what that means like how do we see it so you know we see it in in different in different um situations and and i'm sure you there's also a question around data right so mm -hmm. sometimes it's not very obvious because the race-based data or a disaggregated data does not exist in a, in a large scale here in Canada. So we have to rely on information that we have from the United States or from the United Kingdom. But we know that it also exists and we've seen it. We've been saying COVID is going to be impacting the racialized population, particularly the black population more than other communities. We've been saying that we asked for Toronto Public Health to start collecting data. Mm -hmm. And now we know what we have been saying, right? But you know, in the absence of evidence, uh, or how people say, you know, ab um, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? So, uh, but we see them in different in different areas, right? And and for us, when we define health and the impact of anti-black racism on health and well-being of individuals, it's broader. It includes physical health, but it's a broader um, uh, approach, right? So we see it with I, I mentioned to you. Um, chronic disease and cardiovascular disease, right? We are, you know, uh, at the lowest level of, of um, health outcomes, right? When it comes to health status, except for the indigenous communities, we are at the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. Diabetes, hypertension, mental health, all those kind of health, health outcomes that you can think of. Uh, and then we look at broader issues, right? We look at education, for example. Um, we know, for example, 9% of the Toronto school board uh, population are black students, but they are 42 to 48% of suspension and expulsions, at least the last collection of data shows it's, it's black students. So there's disproportion of expulsion and suspension. Why is that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just because, you know, black students are always getting into trouble and we have projects that we are working on and, and we are demonstrating that it's actually prejudice bias and, and, and anti-discriminatory policies that exist in the school system that creates mm -hmm. that. Um, you look at unemployment. Why are, why are black people more unemployed? And right now, the black youth unemployment is actually the lowest compared to any other racialized communities, including the indigenous communities, twice the national average. How come, right? Uh, we look at mental health, right? Um, we are disproportionately represented in mental health institutions. Uh, 
uh, and particularly in forensic mental health institutions, mm -hmm. right? And you know, this is the same trend that exists both in the US and in the UK. Uh, you know, so um, part, one, part of the problem is because how we access mental health services because of the system challenges and anti-black racism is different from other, you know, the white society or other racialized groups. Yeah. Black people tend to access mental health services more through criminal justice system rather than the, you know, normal pathways through your doctor and then refer to, right? So you, so that is a big challenge. And then we also have overrepresentation of black people in the criminal justice system. Um, and that's, that's by itself is a huge, huge challenge. And then um, we look at um, what I call the voluntary services. All these are now involuntary services, but when you look at voluntary services, um, oh, I, I didn't mention the, the overrepresentation of black children in the child welfare system, yeah. right? 40% of children in care are from black parents. Why is that? Um, and then in the in the positive or voluntary services where we're talking about um, post-secondary education representation, for example, we don't see uh, ourselves represented in in you know we are over overrepresented in mental institutions, but underrepresented in post-secondary education. You know, so there are there are several um, indicators that are showing us that we are really not doing well at all that it is a very difficult and uh, you know, a challenging situation that we are, it's an epidemic. And that's why it is a public health crisis that requires urgent attention and solution. And there are several solutions mm -hmm. uh, and we don't expect that things are going to change overnight mm -hmm. uh, because it's a long standing generation after generation um, and it's very systemic. So there is a lot of change that needs to happen. But unless we start now, right? And then poverty. The other thing that I haven't spoken about is poverty. And then homelessness. Homelessness mm -hmm. is very hidden within the black community. But apparently, the black community has the highest homelessness rate in Toronto, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But because we don't see it on the streets, we don't even think that it exists in the community. So there are, the, you know, these are the kind of impact of anti-black racism on the health and well-being of, of the black communities. Okay, thank you. So building on that, you mentioned there's a number of solutions. Um, and if we can talk about some of the solutions, including the idea of the role that the collection of race-based data could play in solving some of these problems. So tell me a little bit about that and also expand on some of the proposed solutions to deal with these issues. Right, so, so data is going to be very critical if we're going to move uh, towards uh, a solution or, or some improvement, okay? A solution might be, uh, you know, it is, it is a, a target we should have, but at least starting with some improvements in our situation. And without uh, race-based data collection analysis and accountability, I don't think we can get there. Uh, one person, uh, you know, said at uh, one presentation, uh, you know, sometimes it feels as if um, the system really doesn't want to collect race-based data collection because if you have evidence and it's in your face, you've got to do something with it. Right. Uh, so there has been a challenge and some barriers in order to do that. Uh, I also have to say that there are also some challenges within our communities ourselves because of uh, the historical experiences of the black community and data and research 
that has been used to really um, abuse and kill community members. We are also not very, very um, open and eager to participate in race-based data collection. So there's some work that we have to do, and it's a genuine thing that we have to address and talk about it. But without, because it can be used, it also who's, who, who controls the system, the process, and the information, and can that be used for, to further criminalize, marginalize, and stigmatize populations? So we have to be, that it has to be taken into consideration with some care. Mm -hmm. But it's crucial because number one, we need to know the extent of the problem that we are facing, right? We are able to do some work in schools to address um, expulsion suspension systems because we know that there is a very significant disproportion. So we need to know exactly what is happening. We can't just rely on information uh, on uh, the States or, or the UK. It gives us some information, but it has to be specific to our Canadian context or GTA context or Toronto context. So without those information, I don't think we would, we would know where to start. Number two, if we don't know where we are today, how are we going to measure our improvements and our successes by saying, okay, you know, two years from now, we were at this percentage, but today we are at this percentage, so we're making progress. So that's also very important. And number three, I think the race-based data collection is also a way of making sure that distribution of resources, focus, planning, you know, can be guided by race-based data collection, right? Because if we know where the significant disproportion, then we can say, okay, we need to focus on this first and do our planning, do our focus, our strategy, and also funding or resource allocation could also be directed by race-based data. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, it is also a way that we can use the system, make the system accountable, right? Just like, for example, you know, you're funded, you know, through uh, government funding or other foundations. Mm -hmm. We are funded by government and other foundations. How do how are we accountable to them? We have to give them reports on numbers and people served and evaluation, right? Data is also a way of making everybody accountable to each other. And I think we have to use race-based data collection, not just as a way of indicator, as a way of analysis, as a way of sh showing trends and improvement, but also making the system accountable and saying, what are you doing in this area when these numbers show X, Y, and Z? So I think it's very, very critical that we do race-based data collection and analysis. And again, I would like to give credit to the Black health leaders who have also engaged in an advocacy um, to, 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 to do race-based data collection. And that's how Toronto Public Health really agreed to start race-based data collection with the COVID situation, yeah. which we now can give us some information and we can plan around uh, how do we need to address this moving forward. And then following the, the Toronto Public Health um, announcement, the province also now has agreed. And hopefully, you know, this is going to be through all governments where everybody collects similar information and we can then say, here we are today, here where we should be tomorrow, and then we can evaluate ourselves. But it's very critical that without that information, we cannot start where we should start. We cannot address the problem with the, with the focus and the plan, and we cannot evaluate ourselves and make the system accountable. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Um, there's a good question from the audience. So someone is trying to figure out, um, I know this is still relatively new that the province and the municipality, well, municipality of Toronto said they're going to collect race-based data. Is there any way that people can find that? Is that information yes, publicly, will be publicly available or is that something that's still being discussed? I, I think the announcement um, that was made from Toronto Public Health, I think, you know, if you went on the city's website and looked at mm -hmm. the Toronto Public Health board meetings and, and motions and stuff, I think mm -hmm. it's there. And then there, there was also some other announcement out there. Mm -hmm. I, you know, those are announcements and now we need to move into what are the next actions and next yeah. steps. Um, years ago, I think, you know, we also have to be careful in how this is done because again, we have to be mindful of how the data is collecting it, who's collecting it and how is it collecting. So we need, as a community, we need to come together to ensure that it's done the right way. Uh, there are some principles, for example, with indigenous communities, we have the, um, you know, the principles of ownership of data that is being done. So we should be part of that process. So, and communities could engage with their MPPs or their counselors to say, what are you doing about this? We need to be involved. What are the principles you're using? So it is also our responsibility to make sure that happens. Perfect. Thank you. And, and building on that, so, you know, now that we find that, you know, various levels of government are interested, paying a little bit more focus, um, what would you think, uh, how should the various levels of government focus on eliminating systemic racism and inequity and oppression within it from a healthcare perspective? Um, so here is the challenges that we have, we have seen over the years, right? Um, number one, um, we didn't have a we don't have a plan or a strategy to address anti-black racism, mm -hmm. right? Uh, probably the city is in a better shape or a better space right now mm -hmm. because um, we have the action plan to you know action yeah. plan to confront anti-black racism. Uh, I think probably the first in North America. I think you know the city has to be given credit, um, and and we're seeing some some movement there. So at least with the with the municipality, I think there is a good start. And that should give us some kind of a, a model to, you know, engage. But, um, but that's just for the city, right? So, um, mm -hmm. and, and and so part of the challenges we're facing is that there is no overall plan to address anti-black racism, right? Whether it's at, you know, at, at, a, at a municipal level, it's only the city of Toronto. How about Durham? How about you know York? How about Peel, for example, mm -hmm. where challenges are also there? So we need to have a very concerted kind of a strategy to move forward. Um, the other problem ha has been also is government in most cases, um, the response from the government has always been reactionary, right? Um, you know, um, something happens, an incident happens, and then there is a reaction to that incident. And then there is a, a plan, a short-term plan, there is some money invested, and then three years, that plan is gone. And we wait for the for the next incident to happen, and we do that, right? So mm -hmm. we have seen this in this, in for example, in funding cycles, right? 2003, 2004, the summer of guns, significant investment in the community through the Youth Challenge Fund, mm -hmm. over a hundred something, fifty uh, organizations, youth groups, funded to do activities to to, to address this issue. Great start. Out of those 160 or 180 organizations, only three exist today, right? After 40 something million dollars investment. What happened? 
right? Then we had the Danzig shooting and then we had the Black Youth Action Plan, another $40 million uh, investment. Again, a lot of groups, in, you know, in innovative work being funded in the community. That funding is going to come to an end in, in you know, 2021. Mm-hmm. And then we wait for the next cycle. So it has been cyclical. It has been reactionary. That's why a strategy and the plan is required for a long-term change. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we're going to follow incidents and it's going to be cyclical. The other problem is also there is no interministerial kind of uh, approach to the issue that we're facing. When we spoke about as a public health approach, as an anti-black racism, the impact that it has on communities, you know, it's not just health. So it's not just the responsibility of Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care or mental health, right? Housing should be part of it. Education should be part of it. And we have raised this before, saying why is there not an interministerial, provincially, for example, an interministerial kind of a approach to this issue? Because health could be doing something, but if it's not connected to criminal justice or education, it's going to be in silos, right? Everybody is doing in silos, mm-hmm. cyclical. It's two years here, three years there. Some groups get funding here. They start something new. They're great. It starts as by the time it warms up, the funding is over. It dies. Somebody mm-hmm. starts over there. So it, it's very sporadic, ad hoc. It needs a very, very strategized plan to make it a long-term sustainable work. As, as, as I said earlier on, this is generation after generation after generation. You cannot address it with a three years project funding to an organization. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. The participants who are participating in that particular program, if there were 20 youth participating in some leadership skills, maybe, I don't know, six, seven of them would really benefit out of that and move on, right? Even if we say 80% of the youth would participate in that program would have positive impact on them. But that's it. Right, uh, we need a very systemic approach, a long-term sustainable approach. And I think, as an organization, that's where we are now. We want to move away from just doing programs. We want to include I- the idea or the concept of systems change, because if I do a program of leadership skills here, and the school system does not change, or the home environment does not change, it's going to be very difficult for what I'm doing to be sustainable. Because when those youth are in the school environment, all the kind of thing that we have worked would be demolished for them, right? Mm-hmm. So we need to engage the school and say, look, we are doing leadership skills, but here are some things that you need to change. The same thing with mental health, right? If we are building capacity and stigma, you know, addressing stigma and awareness around mental health, but the system doesn't change, the moment I am interacting with the mental health system, all the work that has been invested in me is going to go because the system is going to make it difficult for me to do anything that I have been supported to be doing, right? So the system has, has to change around us. The home environment, the service agencies. So all the programs that we are now developing moving forward at Taibu have a system change component where we are involving all the systems to be part of the program. So they also change. We're not just asking for the youth to gain new skills, but the system has to change. If it's education, education has to change. If it is, you know, we have to involve, involve our uh, faith-based organizations. Now, when you talk about mental health, for example, um, faith-based organizations are predominantly the first point of contact, mm-hmm. racialized communities, right? If they are not supportable, if they are not part of the care plan, 
uh, and they're outside of the system, which they are most of the time, um, it, it, it creates a, a blockade, right, for people to access the, the right service at the right time in the right way. So we should bring in the faith-based organization to the system. We need to work with them, but they also need to work with us, right? So we have to bring the systems together so they are all part of the programming. It's not just Taibu program and the youth and we have a coordinator. No, the system has to come into that program and bring about change. Okay. And, and so building on that is a question from the audience member. And the, the person is asking, do you believe that part of the systemic issues are related to the fact that the focus of our provincial health budget is on acute care primarily and not community-based care? Yeah. Um, and so they went on to say, is there a lack of understanding of the Ministry of Health related to the, to the imbalance of the funding? or is And also, is there a will for systemic change uh, across the sector, whether it's other C CHCs or the Ministry of Health or various municipalities? A very, very good question. And that's also part of the challenge, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when, when I do presentation, I usually show um, uh, a graphic uh, kind of information. And this is something I learned from uh, Dr. Kamara Jones. And I don't know if people have, don't know her. I, I would encourage them to, to Google her. Um, she is a very great advocate around social determinants of health and equity in the States. Um, and she shows a graph where there's a cliff and people are falling off over this cliff, right? Um, and then what governments do is there is, a, there is an ambulance at the, at the bottom of the cliff that is collecting people who are falling from the cliff and taking them to the hospital, right? That's where the investment is. Acute care, hospital services, specialist services, right? And nobody's thinking about upstream and saying, can we put a fence up there and stop people from falling from the cliff, right? Mm -hmm. So in health and in other social issues, especially around equity, this is what is required. We need upstream investment, right? Um, number one, I think um, it, it's very difficult for the system, the government, the hospitals to see this. And, and you know, we, we raise it when we have conversation with them. Um, because sometimes prevention and health promotion, you cannot measure outcomes as such, right? Or it takes a longer time, right? Uh, but um, it could be even cheaper for the government if there was an upstream investment because number one, the investment that you require to prevent or to even identify early and intervene is less than if you have to wait until things go really very bad and they are in the hospital or in the criminal justice system or in a mental health institution. I mean, but it's how the system thinks and how the system evaluates and does processes, right? So it is a very, very important question and that's what we have been doing. And CHCs are known to be doing health promotion and prevention and stuff like that. But the investment is not there yet. And yes, you know, because we have more people going to the hospital and you have to put out the fire there, it's very difficult to divert significant amount of money, and I can understand from a fiscal perspective. But if you start investing a little bit more here and slowly change the balance, that is possible without impacting, right? So if you start investing there, the numbers um, going into the hospital, for example, will be reduced, so you will save money, but then you can reinvest back into health promotion. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, over the years, we did some work around um, 
specialized program for adults with sickle cell disease. Um, people with sickle cell disease, uh, especially before they hit 18, there is a very, very good service at Sickets Hospital. Very comprehensive, very, very good. Once you hit 18 and you're discharged from Sickets, there's nothing out there. Uh, most of the physicians and doctors either are not comfortable or are not, you know, like sophisticated around the complications of sickle cell disease and crisis management. There's a lot of stigma and prejudice uh, with people with sickle cell disease because of the pain management issue. Uh, and so when we did an assessment with the community, we found out that people would not want to go to their doctors when they're not feeling well at the beginning because they know the doctors will tell them, oh, it's a crisis, go to the nurse. So they would wait and wait and wait and wait until it's unbearable, and then they would go to the emergency department, right? So there was nothing in the community to kind of support them. And when they go to the hospital, they're, they're also faced with challenges because number one, they're not believed, um, you know, anti-black racism plays there, you're black, you're probably seen as, as uh, seeking narcotic prescriptions and stuff like that. So that's also a challenge when people don't want to go to health services because they don't want to be stigmatized. So what we, what we implemented here at Taibu was a specialized clinic where we were seeing people while they were well, right? We worked with a very passionate hematologist who was very invested in sickle cell issue. So he used to come here and have a clinic on a weekly basis. And he would see people, whether they are about to have a crisis or no crisis, they would come in and see him. There's a team of other prof professionals, a nurse, a social worker, and a dietitian working together and keeping them healthy all the time, right? Um, so we were able to reduce their crisis incidence by at least half when we evaluated that program. And we also worked with one of the local hospitals in establishing a protocol at the hospital whereby this is evidence-based. If, if you are in a crisis and you go to the hospital emergency department and you're able to be seen within 30 minutes of your arrival there and you're given pain medication, uh, fluids, so hydration, and if needed oxygen, you could be discharged relatively uh, within an hour or two without the likelihood of being hospitalized. Mm -hmm. And so that that protocol was uh, implemented in one of the local hospitals here. And when we did a review three years down the line, we were able to reduce the number of uh, emergency department for adults with sickle cell disease by 65%. Now, that could be monetized, right? So what, how, much, you know, how much does it cost for a person to attend emergency departments? And if you did the calculation, you could prove and demonstrate to say, if you did something around community-based practices, that is culturally appropriate and driven by the community, you could reduce X amount of money in specialist acute services that you could transfer back in doing more of this, right? You could do the same thing with mental health. Mm -hmm. If you had a community mental health, culturally appropriate services, whereby people feel comfortable to access in a non-stigmatized, non-institutionalized way, where they receive, not only access it, but also receive culturally appropriate services, you could reduce the number of people entering institutions like Amage or Ontario Shores, and that money could also be diverted. So there is a, a there is a, a, a what is it a, a demonstration to be made. There is a, a cause to be made 
uh, it's going to take some time, but I think it can be demonstrated that if you can do community-based services and invest more around prevention, right? Diabetes, for example, we are seeing a younger age group in their 20s being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Uh, this is, you know, this is huge. It's an epidemic. If we don't start doing some work in schools around diabetes education, and we only do screening after 40 years, or I, I can't remember what the guideline is, um, you're going to miss a lot of people. It's the same thing with, with other kind of cancer screening rates, right? With black communities, we're seeing so many different access points, right? Breast cancer, you know, being diagnosed with black people earlier and earlier. If we don't start screening or education at an earlier age, right? So those are the kind of things that we need to do, and it should be part of the solution is, Let's not just address what is happening in the hospitals and criminal justice and education, but also let's start some prevention and promotion areas where we are also building capacity in our community. And services should be based in the community. A lot of times announcements are made, mental health funding, and then it goes significantly into hospitals and institutions, right? Definitely they see more cases there, but that's all you're going to be doing. If you're doing that, then you're always going to fight the fire and never think about saying, okay, where is this coming from? What's the root cause for this issue? Can we stop the fire even from the source, right? Or reduce, reduce the gas, for example, so that we don't have to fight the fire all the time. So, I, you know, that was a very, very good question, and I think it should be part of the solution. Thank you. I just want you, if you don't mind, to explain something that you mentioned, and so, um, which was, touch on a little bit of my other question, which was, culturally appropriate health and well-being supports. What does that mean for the black community, for um, the, whether it's Toronto Public Health or Ontario Health Systems to create culturally appropriate health programs for the black community? And how would that impact anti-black racism, impact on the black health? So, you know, thank you for that question. It is very important. When we always talk about cultural services and stuff, for me and from my experience, you know, I look at it at least in two areas. Number one is the access point, right? We say cultural appropriate services, so it's an access point. And one is, number one is that the services have to have a very good relationship with the community. Uh, otherwise, we are very skeptical and don't trust systems. And we have good reason for not trusting the systems. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's our own personal experience when we have been to health systems. Uh, to access services or any other social services when we go there and how we're being treated. So um, that would not give us any comfort or reassurance or confidence that I want to access. So I would delay or I would avoid accessing services because of my own personal experience. But also politically and historically, that those are the issues. So health services should start having some honest conversation and relationship building with communities so that People know what the service is and how it is being delivered. The first thing that we did, you know, we are a very young organization. Um, and I use this most of the time in two different ways. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when people are asking and saying, how come you're not doing ABC? You know, you're, you're supposed to do ABC. And I say, you know, give us a break. We're only 12 years old, right? So mm -hmm. we're still young. But if people say, oh, you're doing all this, and I say, you know, can you imagine in 12 years we've been doing all this? So it, depends. <laughs> it depends what kind of question is thrown at me. But um, one of the things that we did when we started was we really did not start with services right from the get-go. 
we started to build a relationship with the community that we're serving. We, we realized, and the board realized, we're a new organization, nobody knows us, right? We came out of the blue just like that, and we're not in the community. We didn't come out of the blue, but you know, there was a lot of struggle mm -hmm. and work there. But I'm just saying the community is seeing this organization, they don't know us. So we needed to build a relationship. So we use different means of engagement, it's assessment, activities, events, to build a relationship with the community so that they understand us, they know us, and they feel comfortable with us. And over the years, I think that approach has paid because right now we have problems with space and not problem with attendance. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to split groups into two or maybe, you know, like go and find a bigger space because people now understand who we are, what we are about, what are our values, and they are also part of the service provision. So they are part of the planning, they are part of the decision making, right? So they feel comfortable and they consider this not an organization, but this is their organization or their space, right? So they're very, very uh, particular about what happens in the space. And I get called if something is not right. If mm -hmm. the cleaning was not done properly the day before, I mean, as simple things as silence, say, if they see something, they'll come, they will say, can you, uh, can you call the ED, please? We want to talk to him. And I would go out and they would say, this is not what we want to see, right? Mm -hmm. So they are invested in the organization. So that's very important. Number two, I think, um, in addition to building relationship, uh, the other piece is also who do I see when I can come into access services, right? Do I see myself reflected in the services and how it is provided? That's also very important and it should be part of the culturally appropriate service provision. And number three, I think it's when you are accessing the services per se, when you're seeing a doctor, when you're seeing a social worker, when you're seeing a community worker, whoever it is, um, do, do I feel understood, heard? Is my lived experience taken into consideration? Uh, or is it just, you know, like, as we would say, a very Eurocentric approach as opposed to the Afrocentric approach? So those are the kind of three areas is how, how, how does the organization community feels about you, the relationship, the access point, who do I see when I come in? Uh, and, you know, sometimes you don't have to see a black person but you need to see the values that you carry reflected on the professional who's seeing you and then thirdly is the actual engagement services does it really feel right if it is a nutrition service for example um you know we have the canadian food guide right a lot of people would not really engage with that food guide because it does not reflect the food items or the food type of food that we eat mm -hmm. So what we would do is we would create our own food guide that is related to African foods, for example. And the conversation is around that. And people would then understand better, right? If we're doing a physical activity program, you know, we have like a reggae size on, on a Friday, for example, and people would come, this is in their soul. So they will do their exercise. They will feel good. They'll feel happy. They'll feel, you know, respected and made feel that this is for them. Uh, right so mm -hmm. so those are the kind of things and then when you come to mental health issues those are also very nuances that needs to be taken into account right uh, you know usually dismissing of people's lived experiences cultural values spiritual values that is also very important in our communities all those have to be part of that and a quick example i would give is for example a work that was done at Kamage. Uh, and uh, people, members of the black community that have been participating that, people like Dr. Natasha Williams, for example, or Natasha Williams, I think, mm 
or Natasha Brown, um, is, you know, for example, with mental health, the most used therapy module is called the Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, the CBT program. Uh, but CAMH has worked with the community to develop a culturally adapted CBT program for African Canadians, for example. So that mm. people are accessing, they're not just following a module that was very Eurocentric, but has the element of African-centered principles and values. And so it engages people at that level. Great, thank you. And that was really good to get a, a sense of what does culturally competent mean. And so the last thing I want to change gears a little bit, but to get your insight out, because we're running, running out of time. And thank you so much. Wonderful I talked too much. <laughs> it's been but great. I, apologize. I, I, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our attendees learned a lot. So thank you for that. You know, looking at the province of Ontario has reopened most areas. Um, we know Windsor, Essex has challenges there. But, um, and some cities are, including the city of Toronto, are creating, you know, the COVID recovery plan. So how can these local governments, the provincial government, reprioritize the government resources to address anti-Black racism during COVID recovery planning? So um, we've, we've been having a lot of conversation, for example, with the city mm-hmm. around COVID response. Um, to make sure that any responses, any support, any resources, any actions that the city was taking was also taking into consideration uh, the black population and the racialized population. And you know, when you look at the recent um, reports that came out from Toronto Public Health, for example, really shows the actual impact of COVID on the black communities, right? So if you look at the map, for example, it will show you where the highest incidence of COVID is taking place. Uh, it's a very interesting map. So if you, if on that map you put another map around racialization, for example, or immigration map, or chronic disease, let's say diabetes, or newcomers, they all overlap in the same way, right? Those areas where you have racialized population, black population, low income, high incidence of chronic disease, new immigrants and uh, refugees, those are the areas that are most impacted by COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So nothing new, but amplifies and really gives us a tool to now say, this is serious, right? If this, if these are the areas that really need to, that are being impacted, and these are the communities that need to be impacted, any plans moving forward has to take that into consideration as a priority, right? So we have tried, and I think there is um, some movement there, whereas the city was, planning for uh, a recovery plan, we made sure uh, we had a town hall meeting with the mayor and we made sure that there was adequate representation of black communities in that table where recovery plans are being discussed and plans are being formulated. Because as I say, you know, if you're not at the table, you're gonna end up on the menu, Mm -hmm. right? So it's very important that we are part of that conversation as a community, as a black community. That takes the anti-black racism lens and approach uh, from the get-go, right? Two, um, the challenge that we have um, within the black community is this. Um, You know, sometimes when you read, when you hear about recovery plans, it is about restoring people to where they were, right? So the idea, uh, the image that, is being portrayed, at least from what where I see it is, we were, I was doing very well, right? I had my, you know, like I, one, one of my colleagues said, oh, you know, I had my shares and my shares tumbled because of COVID and now they're jumping up, 
So that's my recovery, right? Uh, or I was well, healthy. Uh, I had some challenges, maybe some isolation, some challenges, and now I'm back to where I am. With the black community, as we talked about earlier on, we were not doing well, right? We were not well. Our well-being was not that great, right? Chronic disease, unemployment rate, education, all those kind of things that we talked about, right? And now COVID has taken us a few steps backwards or deeper into the challenge, right? So our recovery curve is not going to be, you know, just like this, for, like it is for other people. Ours is deeper and we're recovering from a, even a deeper situation, right? So we're recovering to where we were before, which is not even great. And now we have to work double in order to get to where well-being at least can be measured. So it's very, very significant that that is how we look at recovery plans. And the investment to get to that place is going to be more than double for the black community. So right. we have to make sure those kind of discussions are taking place and the plan includes even more resources allocation or focuses on the black community to get them to where they were before. But I, I think it's not an equity issue is about social justice. It's not a just, you know, to say, you know, you're back to where you were before, which is not great, but at least we got you there and you should be fine. Mm -hmm. You should move to a little bit better space where our well-being is better than it, what it used to be before COVID. So I think there is a lot of work that needs, we need to do. We need to advocate. We need to push uh, as, a way, as a way of making sure that the recovery for racialized communities, particularly Black and Indigenous communities, is a priority, has more equity and um, resources to be able to get them to a place where there is health and well-being. All the work that we've been doing to improve the health and well-being of Black people, once COVID came, was gone. Yeah. We have to rebuild now. And so we're not starting from a lower place. We, it's gone, right? It, it has to be started from scratch. And that requires a lot of investment. And that's the challenge we would have um, because, uh, you know, um, it's, it's going to be challenging to make the system accept, understand, see it from this perspective. There's going to be questions about, oh, you know, financial issues and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, as I'm learning now in most recent days is, in actual fact, if you do equity work and get the most vulnerable, marginalized people to a place where they are you know, closer to being equal with the other society, you are actually making everybody healthy and everybody well. Uh, so that is a very good principle, but it's a huge task that needs very, very um, strong advocacy from us, from people, from individuals, and we all have a role to play could be an email to our elected officials. You know, it, it, it's, it's about continuing the conversation. It's about coming together and making this case um, to people who are making decisions. All right. Thank you so much. It was a, a really pleasure to hear and learn from you today. Um, I hope everyone learned as much as I did from listening to you. I know there's a lot more we can cover and we will be covering over this spotlight series in the next few weeks. Um, in September, as I mentioned, we are going to be looking at COVID impact on racializing immigrant women. We're also looking at food equity, food security issues for the black community. So there's a lot that we want to explore and I'm sure we'll get to talk again. Um, the video um, and the audio would be available on our 
podcast and our YouTube channel. And we'll be emailing it again out to all the attendees. So Libin, it's just been an absolute pleasure to listen to you. I can sit and listen to you all day. I'm learning so much. I'm I making talk, little notes. I could talk all day. <laughs> well, I could talk you. all day, but thank you for the invitations, really. And I hope thank uh, you. You know, many people have questions, you know, just they can contact me as well. Wonderful. We'll definitely share. And we'll share Taibu's um, organization so people can yeah. learn more. And if they want to connect and make uh, aware of the services um, that is available and also make the community more aware of the services they are unaware. So much um, gratitude for, to you and your team for the work that you're doing for the community. Really greatly appreciate that. Um, and thank you for your time this, this, this morning here. And everyone, thank you so much for joining us. September 1st, we will be here at 11 a.m and we'll be looking at COVID and immigrant and racialized women. Have a great rest of the week and thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye.